0: Well, children, you will notice in your bulletin in the normal spot, the words to listen for this evening, they're sent and send, uh, kingdom, peace, accept, reject, judgment, gospel, salvation, joy, and rejoice, all right? So be listening for those this evening, and uh, I'm always... Uh, I'm always glad to see your counts at the conclusion of the service. Uh, in an article uh, written in Psychology Today back in 2011, uh, entitled "50 Ways to Add Joy to Your Day," psychologist Carolyn Rubinstein shared a list of 50 things she thought brought her. Or she said brought her joy, uh, and the top 10 included uh, some of these things: smiling writing a thank-you note to herself, venturing outside for a five-minute walk, indulging in a delicious piece of chocolate, finding and wearing a piece of jewelry that she hadn't worn in a while, picking fresh flowers or sending herself a bouquet of flowers, visiting a funny blog or watching a funny movie or spending time with someone who made her laugh, finding serenity in a favorite local spot of Uh, That she enjoyed either a park or lake or coffee shop or a little spot in her house or office. Uh, Taking action, or one action, just one, towards a goal or dream. And then she the, the top ten ends with hitting the pause button and spending five minutes alone, allowing her mind to be quiet. Now, I I don't doubt for one minute that those things brought her a level of happiness. I mean, there are several things on that list that I like to do. But I I think I can say that I don't believe that those things actually bring her joy, because there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is a positive feeling or sense of well-being, gladness, and delight that is a result of favorable external circumstances, and if I read the list again, you'd see that all of those things are external, and most of them or all of them are actually self-focused, and I and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. They, they are just about her, and, and that's fine. But joy, on the other hand, is a positive feeling of a positive feeling or sense of well-being, gladness, and delight that is a result of beholding the beauty and wonder of God, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. So happiness is based upon our temporary, ever-changing circumstances, while our joy is based upon an eternal, immutable, or never-changing person. Joy is actually God-given. It is is a deep-seated inner gladness. It is a deep-seated soul delight. And it elicits assurance and confidence that is independent of our external circumstances. Joy leads to exuberant praise in the midst of our successes and at the same time enables us to jump up and down for joy in the midst of our failures, trials, and sufferings. And with that in mind, I want to ask a question, and it's going to be an unfair question because I'm not going to give you time to answer. Uh, I hope that the question will linger as we walk through our our chapter tonight in Luke 10. But the question is, is simply this. What brings you the most joy? What brings you the most joy? And while you consider, let me pray for us before we go any further. Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention, open our sorrows, convict us and challenge us. And then would you please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel tonight. I am am weak and needy for this task to which you've called me, so I ask for your support and your strength. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Grant me clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. Well, you're going to find the outline in the back of the bulletin where you always do, and there are three points tonight in our passage in these 24 verses. We're going to look at the sending, the warning, and then lastly, the rejoicing. So let's look first at the sending. Uh, the first, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, when we were, were studying that chapter, uh, they, uh, the 12 apostles were sent. Uh, and it was a trial run that would provide the apostles that uh, on-the-job training that they would need in the post Crucifixion and pro- post resurrection time uh, that we read about in Acts on that day of Pentecost when the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit and empower the, impo- the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this particular sending is similar, but it's also different. And so I want to walk through some of those similarities first. First, it was similar because it was this this in chapter 10 is in fact a divine sending. The Father and the Son had authorized and initiated the plan, and they had appointed and equipped and sent the apostles to go. It was also similar in regards to its mission and, of course, the message. It was a mission of proclamation. And the message was that the kingdom of God was near. And as you've heard me say countless times throughout our study to this point, it was a message of the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah, that, that warrior king that had been sent from God who had come to rule and reign in the hearts and lives of those who would look to Him in faith. It was a message of reconciliation and peace. And that reconciliation and peace had been made possible through the forgiveness of sins. Now it was also similar in terms of the urgency. Here as well as back in chapter 9, Jesus didn't want them to take anything with them. He didn't want them to be involved in any kind of small talk. He didn't want anything to weigh them down or slow them down from the task at hand. And then, of course, it's similar in terms of its dependency or or the dependency of those who were going. They were worthy of being supported by those to whom they took the message. They were worthy of support by those that they administered to. But this dependency on others for their provision was was more significant in that it would actually allow them to exhibit that, that trust that He desired for them to exhibit, a trust in the Lord to provide for their needs. But it went a step further, and it also would allow them to display their contentment in how and with what He provided. And then finally, it was similar in how they responded to those that they encountered. In the places where the message was received, They, of course, would receive the provisions that were offered and they would heal their sick. And, of course, those healings both affirmed and confirmed the validity of the message that they had heard and that the people would know and understand that the peace that had been pronounced on them was, in fact, a reality. But in those places where the message was rejected, just like back in chapter 9, the 72 was to Wipe the sand from their feet and depart. Because as Jesus says, the the acceptance of the messenger marked the acceptance of the message. The rejection of the messenger marked the rejection of the message. So wiping the dust off their feet symbolized this rejection of the town. And more importantly, the rejection of Christ who was rejecting those who had rejected him. Now, what about the differences? Well, the first is we've we've already noticed in chapter 9 there were 12. Here in chapter 10 there are 72, and it says 72 others. So this is 72 beyond the 12. And this is significant. It's a significant increase in number, but it's significant because this... this pointed to the fact that this mission they were on was a small part of a larger global mission. It was going to take more than the 12. Actually, it was going to take more than the 72 because Jesus says, right, the, the harvest is going to be plentiful because this is a global mission. The harvest is going to be plentiful. It's going to be a worldwide thing. And he says, but the laborers few." So it was going to take even more than the 72, but unfortunately, there weren't enough people who were willing to do the cost-benefit analysis that we heard last week, and determine whether it was worth following Jesus, and even fewer were determining that it would be worth the labor, the labor-intensive effort that it would be to sow and to gather, to sow the Word and to gather those who are responding to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But notice, he doesn't say, therefore, develop a 10-year strategic plan. And he doesn't say, oh, therefore, formulate a vision statement and a mission statement and, and put it on all your stuff. He doesn't say, hold a missions conference. He doesn't say, get a special speaker in and recruit. He says, pray. He says, pray earnestly. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. He says, as you're going, pray that others will join you. As you answer the call to go, pray that others would do the same because there are many that are waiting. The second difference, he says, is I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And this is a very pointed and descriptive way to say that the mission that they were about to embark on was both difficult and dangerous. And that's because the opposition had begun to mount. They had already experienced some, but it was growing. There were spiritual and physical enemies that were waiting for them not just to push back, but to do harm. And he didn't want them to be caught unaware. And then thirdly, those who were being sent simply weren't to wipe the sand from their feet. He also gave them parting words to share. Right, so as they're doing it, he was to tell them, this is what we're doing. But he goes further than, further than that. He says, if you're received, or if you're, sorry, if you're rejected, Go, And on your way out of town, stop in the middle of the street and say for all to hear, let them know that just because they've rejected the truth doesn't mean that it isn't true. He basically says what you've told them is true, whether they believe it or not. They may think truth is relative. They may think that what's true for them is true for them and what's true for you is true for you. But remind them. Let them know the reality is that what is true is true. What is false is false. And if you believe what is false, it doesn't make what is true any less true. He says, tell them the kingdom of God has come near whether you believe it or not. And that brings us to the last difference that I've actually made its own point in the outline, and it's the warning. Look at verse 12. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears me, and the one who rejects me. The one who who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now we all know Sodom and the sister city of Gomorrah were the two most shamefully wicked cities in the Old Testament that God destroyed by fire in Genesis 19. Tyre and Sidon had woes pronounced against them in Isaiah 23. And Chorazin and Bethsaida, and Capernaum were, were cities that Jesus and his disciples had been ministering in. And the warning is very, very clear. He says with sadness and dismay, there there is no pleasure in what he says. But that displeasure and that dismay written all over him in his voice, and he says it would be more bearable. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and for Tyre and for Sidon than it would be for Chorazin. And Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and that's because Corzin and Bethsaida, and Capernaum had seen Jesus. They had heard Jesus. They had seen. They had seen his ministry of presence. They had heard his ministry of proclamation. And Jesus very clearly and boldly says, "If that had happened." in Sodom and in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. They would have gotten the sackcloth and ashes and would, repent, would have repented of their sins. And, and that's, how, that's how significant, that's how significant the person and work of Christ was and continues to be. Right? In the words of one commentator, privilege begins... I'm sorry, privilege brings responsibility to those who are beneficiaries of the ministry of either Jesus' messengers or Jesus himself. The measure of the privilege that came their way was so exceptional that it would have brought to repentance the most notorious of ancient sinful cities. The kingdom was near. So those who rejected the good news of the kingdom and the peace of God that was being offered to them by Christ and those ministering to his name were not only rejecting the message, they were rejecting the kingdom. And they were rejecting the king of that kingdom in the Lord Jesus. And they were rejecting the Lord of heaven. And Christ says, judgment will be severe. And I hope, yes, I I hope we all feel the weight of that warning. It's a heavy weight. Each and every week when the gospel is preached, the kingdom of God is near. Each and every week. When you hear that peace and reconciliation has been made possible in the person and work of Christ, the kingdom of God is near. Each and every week, when you hear that forgiveness of sins through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross is available to all who will repent. Of their sin and turn and look to Him in faith, the kingdom of God is near. And to not repent and to not turn in faith, to not look to the Lord Jesus, is to reject the message of the gospel, it's to reject the kingdom, it's to reject the King. And judgment will follow. And judgment will be severe. Make no mistake. We will all be held responsible for what we have heard. And therefore you can never say you did not know. Again, I know that's weighty. But as Aaron said last week. This is going to be the common question for the rest of Luke's gospel. How will you respond to the person and work of the Lord Jesus? Well, That brings us to the last point. In verses 17 to 24, we come to the rejoicing. All right, we come to the rejoicing, and there are two parts to this rejoicing. The first is is the rejoicing of the 72. We don't know how much time had elapsed. We just know that when they return, they're rejoicing. They're full of joy. And as I read this over and over this week, I could just hear them as as they return, right? Jesus, you should have seen it. We were preaching the word. We were preaching the message of the gospel and of the kingdom being near. We were healing in your name. It was amazing. People were responding. And even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I know. Every time you cast out a demon, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we pause in the midst and go, what does that mean? Well, their ability to exercise demons that Christ said He uh, equipped them for in verse 19 by granting them power and authority over them was a sign that the ultimate victory that Christ would win through His cross and that would be, that would be um, ultimately and finally consummated at the final judgment had already begun and it was evident in their Ministry. Their encounters were small skirmishes and battles in the larger war. And and those little battles and those little victories pointed to the victory, the sure victory of Christ the King in his winning of the war. He could see it happening. The kingdom had come near, and they should, in fact, rejoice. It was right for them to rejoice. And brothers and sisters, I think we often forget that we, too, should rejoice every time we experience God's victory over Satan through Christ. And so, I want to remind us of what some of those, just a few of those victories look like. We experience that victory through Christ, in the words of Philip Riken, whenever God's Word is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, we should rejoice, right? We experience that victory whenever a sinner comes to faith in Christ. We should rejoice. We experience that victory in Christ Whenever secret sin is brought into the light of the cross, as difficult as that is, we should rejoice. We experience victory every time a believer stands firm against temptations to lust after life's pleasures or to be embittered by life's disappointments or to rage against a hard providence or to do anything else contrary to God's will for our lives. We should rejoice. May we, in fact, rejoice in these victories and and the others, both our own and, and those around us. But now notice what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, He's not telling them to rejoice in those victories. He joined them in that rejoicing. So that rejoicing is okay. He's he's saying, look, that rejoicing is, is fine. You should rejoice in the power and authority and ability that I've given you to minister in my name. And you should rejoice in the success that you experience in ministry because your success is ultimately as a result of me. So continue to rejoice in those things But that's not what should bring you the most joy. There's something else that should bring you a far greater joy than even this, and that is the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life. Your greatest joy, he says, is, your greatest joy should come from the fact that you are are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And all of the rights and privileges of that kingdom are yours now. And it's as if that statement that he makes to them begins this train of thought that he can't escape, and, and he even begins rejoicing himself in verse 21. He says, in, It says, in that same hour, he. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And I I think this is safe to say that this isn't just just kind of your normal, average, everyday joy, right? And and I believe that because I I actually believe this is the greatest expression of joy due to the fact that this joy is perfect, untainted, unblemished, complete, and, and, and exhibits a full exuberance of the divine. And so this this joy that he's expressing, it it arises out of his his thinking and his consideration of three things. First, it's the Father's sovereignty and salvation. What for many just weighs people down, For, for Jesus it brought joy. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's also thinking and considering the intimate fellowship between himself and the Father. Verse 22, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He was was rejoicing in as as he thought about that fellowship within the Godhead. And then finally, he's rejoicing in the salvation of the disciples. He says in verse 23, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And because of what he said prior in the previous two verses, he said it was the Father's gracious will for that to happen and I gave you the ability. I revealed it to you but I'm rejoicing in your salvation. So why should the disciples rejoice first and foremost in the fact that they were residents and and citizens of the kingdom and, and that they had been promised eternal life? It's because Christ himself rejoiced in it. And there was no greater joy. So let's go back to the question. That I asked when we began. What brings you the greatest joy? And I think, I think it's safe to say, I think I can boldly say that if we answered anything other than our salvation, we got it wrong. And we need to try again. And here's why an eternal, an infinite, Triune, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, self-sufficient, wise, holy, just, good, merciful, gracious, loving God created us so that he could dwell among and fellowship with us. And he desired that so much that despite our doubt, despite our disobedience, despite our offense and our rebellion and our rejection, he purposed and initiated and completed a redemptive plan of salvation that would salvage us and restore us to where he desired us to be. And it was a plan like any other no plan like it, humanly speaking, for His plan, His plan did not include um, any attempt on our part to ascend into His presence. It didn't include uh, any attempt to, for us to successfully attain any merit to qualify ourselves for reinstatement. It didn't include any attempt on our part to accomplish through any of our work to satisfy or pay back the debt that we owed for our sin. His plan included not just the descent but the the condescension of the eternal Son who took on flesh, became a man, In order to become our perfect substitute. Who would obey to the point of death on the cross. Upon which he served as our substitute. Our perfect substitute. And it would be his righteousness. His perfect work. That would be credited to us. So that we might be justified. We might be declared holy. We might be declared righteous and good. It would be his death through which our sin would be atoned for and our debt would be paid and we would be forgiven. It would be on him that our sin was laid. It was in him that our redemption and adoption was secured and our status and position that was once as enemies was, is now sons and daughters of the king. And we will dwell in fellowship with him forever. And the faith that we, that we need to not only believe this gospel to be true, but that we also need to, to receive all of the benefits of this gospel and of this plan was a gift of God's grace. Christ has not only chosen to reveal all of this to us, but to also grant us the faith to believe it. Brothers and sisters, how can we not rejoice? May we behold the beauty and wonder of our God in the person of Christ. And may we be ever mindful of His sovereignty, the Father's sovereignty and grace and, and the intimate fellowship within the Godhead, and as well as the fact that we have fellowship with Him because of our salvation in Christ. And as we do, may it it in fact lead to exuberant praise in the midst of our successes. And at the same time, may it lead to jumping up and down for joy and triumph. Not for the failures and trials and sufferings, but in the midst of our failures, trials, and sufferings. Because we have nothing to fear. And may we depart from here tonight. May we depart from here ready and willing to proclaim this gospel message to any and all who will hear it. And may we go praying, not only tonight, but throughout the week that others will join us in this global mission of proclamation. It won't be easy. In fact, the difficulty is going to grow and it may, the danger may, may grow as well, but again, We have nothing to fear. We are in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.